Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Today on the Hal Anderson Afternoon Podcast on 680 CJOB, with guest host Cameron Poitras, myself, we talked about gangs in Winnipeg with Dr. Michael Weinrath, graduate chair of criminal justice in the master's program at the U of W, trying to put ourselves in the mindset of somebody involved in gang violence. We talked about the Nashville tornado that struck that community early Tuesday morning, and we also tried to put ourselves in the shoes of people having to deal with and survive that tornado what would it be like to go through an ef3 tornado blowing through your community we spoke to tracy garbett with cnib about the 2020 insight gala taking place march 14th at the rbc convention center with all proceeds going to support their wonderful guide dog program and boosting street construction standards in the city of Winnipeg. We all know this is a problem. St. Boniface Councillor Matt Allard stopped by the show to discuss. And that's what's on the podcast and now the podcast. We're going to get right on into this. Uh, The conversation with gangs has come back here in the city of Winnipeg. Uh, New information released about a pair of homicides last year. Now, Winnipeg police say a young man that was shot and killed at a South Point neighborhood townhouse last November, was responsible for a fatal nightclub shooting just days before. Rig Dback Mulebu was found shot and killed at that townhouse in the South Point neighborhood on November 4th. At the time, police say that uh, Mulebu's death was gang-related. At a Tuesday afternoon press conference, Constable Jay Murray said that Mulebu was killed in retaliation for the shooting death of 23-year-old Jamshed Wahabi, who was found dead at the scene of a shooting at Citizen Nightclub on Bannatyne Avenue on November 2nd. To help us understand this a little bit further, we're joined uh, by Graduate Chair of Criminal Justice Master's Program at the University of Winnipeg, Dr. Michael Weinrath. Uh, doctor, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Ken. Oh, the pleasure's all mine. <laughs> no, it's it's. I'm uh, really happy to have you on the on the show. This is this is an unfortunate story, but I, I as I'm sure you're aware, something that's playing out across the city right now, isn't it? Uh, well, I mean, I think that uh, gang tensions are uh, you know always there, uh, more or less. I mean, this particular uh, crime uh, certainly there's a history uh, between the two gangs. And, uh, you know, when you're in the, the business of, of moving drugs and other illegal activities, territory uh, is important and people feel that their territory is being violated. You know, you'll, uh, you'll see violence uh, if, uh, you know, uh, gang member A uh, victimizes uh, gang member uh, B from another gang, uh, you know, you can expect some uh, payback at some point in time. So, so I guess what are they, what are they fighting over? Is it is it drug selling turf? I mean, I'm sure there's a, a number of reasons, but is that kind of the underlining one? Usually, that's the most typical one. Yeah. But you know, could be uh, somebody uh, was uh, making a move on someone's supposed uh, girlfriend. I mean, sometimes the uh, the things that trigger uh, these. Uh, Exploits can be, uh, you know, relatively minor, but uh, turf and territory is usually the most uh, uh, common explanation. What's kind of the mindset of the of, of these of these members of these gangs when they're when they're kind of shooting people over, you know, territory and turf? I mean, it, it seems like it's we're, we're kind of moving back on the evolutionary chain. I mean, that's kind of the way I look at it. Um, what's going through their heads? Well, I mean, I think if you're in uh, even, you know, thinking of uh, street gangs as sort of organized crime. Uh, they're certainly not as organized as, as mafia. 
uh, type or organizations. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if you're in that sort of illicit uh, area of business, uh, willingness to uh, to use violence uh, becomes very important, right? If you're not willing to defend your turf, and if you're not willing to use uh, lethal violence, then you're going to lose turf. So, you know, those things remain relatively uh, unchanged. And, you know, often the, the gangs that, that survive in the long term are the ones that are, that are willing to do that. <laughs> Having said that, you know, uh, in the end, uh, a lot of violence is not necessarily uh, great for business. It attracts the attention of police and, you know, uh, even customers uh, get a little worried at some point. Yeah, it's such an interesting, uh, you know, I, I don't know how you call it. Could you call it a concept? Like it's just an uh, ideology that, I mean, it's, it's going on in every city or every community across this continent. Yes, but I mean, you know, the, the causes of, uh, of gangs uh, tend to be uh, similar, uh, and in North America, sort of defined uh, by by race in terms of you know marginalized uh, minorities. So whether you're you know in Chicago, Miami, or or Winnipeg, you know, you're going to find uh, a lot of individuals involved in gangs who uh, come from uh, very poor areas, uh, tend to have families that uh, have been uh, not not very effective, dysfunctional, and uh, not to, to have uh, succeeded at uh, at school, which is kind of the, the great equalizer, right? Like even if uh, we're not uh, wealthy, we can always go to school and, and work our way up. So if, for people who uh, don't have families to support them and don't do, uh, do well at school, uh, the gangs uh, become very... Uh, uh, seductive, right? It's an opportunity for success. Well, yeah, and it's a opportunity for status as well within kind of your group or what is perceived to be, a, you know, a kind of an elevated status, right? Right, and then you know the willingness to use violence, um, and you know people who are um, you know impulsive and aggressive. Unfortunately, when you recruit those folks, sometimes <laughs> they're pretty quick to uh, to pull the uh, the trigger, right? Mm. So it's kind of an advantage and a disadvantage, really, for organized crime to flourish. A certain amount of peace between the groups and everybody makes money, right? That's the thing that's going to get uh, people ahead in the long run. Now, uh, because of this gang activity, you know, the police have been uh, fairly active in enforcement. And, you know, uh, again, there are different allures for gangs. I mentioned, you know, you will see street gangs form and, uh, you know, very aggressive gangs in these poor areas. But you will still attract a certain number of uh, middle-class folks. So often when you look at groups like the Hells Angels, uh, often they're from white, uh, middle-class, working-class backgrounds. And, you know, sometimes people do get into it, uh, not because of social dysfunction, but because of profit, excitement. You know, it's kind of a a cool uh, uh, lifestyle. And so, you know, in this particular case we saw recently, you know, some of the gang members had no real uh, history of contact with the police, uh, which is, um, you know, unusual, uh, at least for the, the street gangs in uh, in Winnipeg. So when, when these kids are, are approached, um, I mean, how, how does it happen? Is it an older member of the gang that kind of, you know, puts their hand around their shoulder and, and, and says, you know, hey, uh, you know, I could help you out. I could make you a couple of bucks. Is that is that kind of how it happens? Yeah, it can happen in different ways. I mean, in Winnipeg, right, we're a small, uh, small city. Uh, so often, you know, you may have older brothers and sisters who are involved in gangs and, you you know, gain the connections that way. But often the people in the neighborhood that seem to, seem to have the money and, and the exciting lifestyle are often uh, gang members. And certainly, you know, using uh, younger uh, gang members 
who come under the Youth Criminal Justice Act and not the Adult Criminal Code. You know, that's been going on since time immemorial. Here you run these drugs because if you get arrested, uh, you know, the, the punishment's not going to be as severe as for me as an adult. So, yeah, sad sad to say, but the, that still goes on. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is sad, uh, Doctor. Um, as well, um, uh, these, these murders seem to be, you know, sort of these tick-for-tack uh, and murders, if, if I can sort of phrase them like that, they seem to be very emotional, kind of spur of the moment, kind of we got to get back at, uh, at this guy for, for taking down one of my friends. Yeah, and I mean, and, you, know, you got three people arrested. Yeah. So, so, I mean, that's the problem, right? Like you're recruiting people in gangs who are willing to be violent, but you get people who are fairly impulsive, right? So, you know, uh, I think if you look at, some of the homicides involving the the Hell's Angels, you're more likely to uh, find people on a back road with their a bullet in the back of their head, and uh, you know there's a fair number of those uh, murders. There's been a few in Winnipeg that go unsolved, right? So, um, I mean, it's one thing I think to to be violent and you know get into a, a battle with another gang member, but don't know how smart it is to actually be arrested and for first degree murder and then go away for 25 years. Uh, Dr. Uh, Michael Weinrath is graduate chair of criminal justice master's program at the University of Winnipeg. Uh, Dr. Uh, Weinrath, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my my pleasure, Cam. Yeah, have a good day. Yeah, you too. Take care. Yeah, just uh, some great comments there uh, by the doc um, as to sort of why these uh, kids are kind of drawn towards the kind of gang lifestyle and sort of the mentality, you know, the the emotional decisions, the the uh, propensity towards violence. Uh, impulsive behavior and you know I, I can't put my I, I always struggle to put myself in the mindset of somebody that you know is willing to kill somebody for turf or, or territory and I, I appreciate uh, Dr. Weinrath there kind of painting a picture it's just gone from this sort of energetic like hey we're gonna do this we're gonna get together and we're gonna you know band together and fix this to a few hours later, just exhaustion and tears in the streets, and it's really sad. That was host of HGTV's Making It Home, Courtney Wilson, who yesterday was on the news with uh, Richard Cluche and Julie Buckingham right here on 680 CJOB. At least 24 people were killed in Nashville, Tennessee, early Tuesday, shredding more than 140 buildings and burying people in piles of rubble. The EF3 tornado caused terror all across the community. And I'm joined now by meteorologist and storm tracer uh, Justin Hobson, who was on the ground during the EF5 tornado in Eli, Manitoba back in 2007. Hey, Justin, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing? Yeah, great. I'm doing great. I, 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 we, when we talked earlier, when I, when we were talking about getting you on on the show, uh, I, I wanted you to come on to kind of help paint a picture of what this tornado, you know, may have looked like for somebody who was on the ground uh, when it was going when it was going on. What could it look like if a storm like this, say, would would hit the city of Winnipeg? So if you're going to try to relate it to the Nashville tornado, which occurred in the middle of the night, I mean, it's already dark. I mean, you're going to start driving, and you're going to see visibility drop even further as debris starts to get picked up. You're going to have glass breaking. You're going to have just even branches of trees breaking, and that's assuming there's even parks downtown. But if you're surrounded by concrete, you're going to have whatever's coming off the top of the buildings. Is there are there any cranes coming down? Like it'll be just the scariest experience. And like honestly, like I know they always say, get out of your vehicle and go lie in a ditch. If you're downtown or in any urban setting, there isn't really any ditches. So like. The only thing I would say, like, 
it's going to be super scary and noisy and you might even see vehicles starting to flip around like if you can go anywhere like an underground parkade into a subway tunnel or even under your car like i just couldn't even imagine that experience of what it'd be like and that doesn't even matter if it's at nighttime or even during the day and i couldn't imagine if it was rush hour and you're stuck just in gridlock never mind having a tornado bearing down on you Mm-hmm. The most dangerous aspect of these of these kind of storms, Justin, I'm not telling you anything you don't know here, is is the debris. Um, that's what you're going to get a lot of if it would if it would occur in, in a city. Bricks, concrete, that kind of stuff, eh? Yeah, absolutely. It'd be like a saw blade just throwing everything and churning. Just imagine being in a blender and then everything from, exactly like you said, bricks, glass, parts of vehicles, branches, just debris air conditioners coming off rooftops like those industrial size ones like it'd just be the scariest experience ever and no i know tornadoes they say they don't hit urban areas that's just a myth it's just you don't want them to hit urban areas mm-hmm. uh, tristan field jones here uh, uh a part of her team here at 680 cgob he's a big uh he's a big weather nerd and and he said something in the newsroom earlier today that i, I found a little a little you know shocking was he said that uh when wind speeds go so quick things even as simple as straw can become deadly like straw Absolutely. like from hay Absolutely. like hay Yes, so that what happens is those get accelerated by the wind and they could actually stab through like trees or even the side of uh, buildings. Like in the Eli Torino, some of the damage that I noted was like two by fours drilled right through the siding of a house, right into the interior of the home. I've seen the roof lifted up with curtains and all that pulled into the corner of the roof. And then after the tornado moved by, the roof went back down, but it pinched the curtains in between. You see some strange things with tornado damage. And I think there was even a picture I saw on social media after this Nashville of a vehicle that I think was thrown into a three-story building. So, I mean, that's some scary stuff. Well, it's just incredible. I mean, just uh, having to live through something like this. Um, you, you say you're locked in, in a basement or your or your bathroom or basically anything anywhere you can get to get away from this. You, you're going to be kind of blind. What kind of things would you be hearing going on outside? Oh, man, I think it would be the loudest. Like, I imagine just like stuff like, somehow like a waterfall mixed with debris and you could hear everything banging around. I think your ears would pop if the tornado passed over your head. Plus you'd be like hunkering down as low as possible. Cause I still think like the shaking and even debris in your own, like let's say bathroom would be just like falling off the shelves and everything going by. I, again, like that's something you hope to never experience. And those poor people in uh, Nashville had to go through that. And you know, a lot of them were already sleeping for the night. Did they get the proper warning? Were they upstairs on a second story home? Like, did they even have a chance? So, I just, I don't even want to think about it. It's so scary. What what did the scene look like when you showed up at Eli? I didn't get there until the next day uh, when I did a damage survey uh, with Environment Canada at the time. And the stuff that we noted, again, was just houses, like, ripped off their foundation. Like, one house was removed and thrown, like, hundreds of yards, like, picked up, like, plucked out. And then trees are also plucked out, like, carrots and tossed. I saw a turkey from a freezer thrown across the field. Of course, it had flies and everything on it. You saw, like, those big cast iron pots just dented. Uh, the debarking of the trees, the smell of, like, that fresh cut, like when you dig up a garden, that earthy smell. Just the fuel of the vehicles that were flipped over, you could smell, like, the coolant and everything else. Like, it was just, I still remember it to this day, even though that was, what, 13 years ago. So, Yeah, those things don't don't get away away from you. What were the emotions of those people on the ground uh, back all the way in 2007, the people that went through it? Yeah, for some, obviously, there was, um, there's probably still to some PTSD to this day. But one thing I noted was a lady, when we were inside checking out the damage and trying to get an idea of what happened there, 
she was sweeping her floor with like had you know debris all over the floor but you know her house had to be you know demolished because the whole structure was compromised due to the tornado lifting the roof off like you know it was the one where it was like lifted and set back down so the poor lady you know i think there was a little bit of shock there i'm just glad we were able to be there and help and try to figure out what actually went wrong i mean we obviously know a tornado went through there but us as environment canada forecasters are trying to figure out how strong that tornado was you know you better you learn from that in the future right, and move on so Scary. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's an incredible story. A, a woman s- sweeping up her her house, just destroyed all around it. Yet, uh, just uh, you know, the mental state of her at that time. I mean, she's you know doing something like sweeping up, which uh, you know you, you you hate to say, it, but it's just uh, you know f- for no reason, really. Right. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. How strong can these? Like, this was an EF three tornado that went into Nashville. Uh, right. How how fast are those winds moving? So an EF3 for kilometers an hour, that's basically the range of 225 to 265 kilometers an hour. And those tornadoes are considered like capable of producing severe damage. So you have, you know, roofs, walls, they're torn from structures and small buildings are destroyed. And most trees in the area do get uprooted. And then the F5 and Eli, that's considered an incredible, like a tornado capable of incredible damage. And those have wind speeds at the time of 420 to 510 kilometers an hour. And strong frame houses are lifted from their foundation. You know, even reinforced concrete structures are damaged. And then vehicles become airborne, trees debarked, just like ultimate devastation. Yeah, it's something you'd never forget uh, your entire life. Uh, Justin Hobson is a meteorologist and storm chaser. Uh, Justin, thanks so much for coming on and, and, and sharing with us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. Thanks a lot. There he goes. Uh, again, Justin Hobson, meteorologist and storm chaser. I'm I am a person that's interested in the human experience. And put try, I try to put myself in the shoes of individuals who go through unbelievable circumstances. You know, that, that's, that's why I like to approach a lot of these, a lot of these stories. I like to try to put myself as, as close to what actually happened. And, and I, I appreciate Justin coming on. He did a fantastic job of, of painting the picture of what this would be like to go through a tornado ripping through Winnipeg. It would be horrible. It would be, Moments of your life that would uh, there would be seconds, but they would seem like hours. I mean, imagine sitting in a bathroom, like he said, sounding like a waterfall outside, everything possible that can be picked up flying around. You know, you you un completely un you know completely un. Uh, not knowing whether the house that you are in or the place that you're being protected is going to be enough to keep you alive. And um, the the story he told, again, about that woman sweeping up her home, just in, devastated. But, you know, obviously shock there. I mean, just unfortunate, but sweeping up. And that's what, that's what it's like. This is what the people in Nashville that we're dealing with, this is what's going, th- they're dealing with right now. And I played that clip from HGTV's Making It Home with Courtney Wilson, who was on uh, the news with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham yesterday, talking about how you kind of got out of it and the adrenaline's pumping, you know, your heart rate's still up, you know, you're trying to maybe help people around you, but by the end of the day, 
the emotions of the day and what you experienced starts making you crumble and you break down. And that's what it's like, or, you know, trying to, trying to understand what it's like to go through something like what just happened uh, in Nashville. Thank you so much to meteorologist and storm chaser, uh, Justin Hobson. Cameron Poitras in for uh, Hal Anderson. Hal Anderson, I think we'll be back next week. I think that's uh, what I've been hearing here down the grapevine. I've been I've been texting with him. He is uh, he's doing fine. Everybody, he's okay. Just needs a little bit, a couple uh, more days off here uh, to get himself uh, right as rain. Uh, but uh, he did set up an interview uh, with me here. I'm jo- uh, the 2020 CNIB Inside Gala is coming up next Thursday, March 12th, at the RBC Convention Center, and I'm joined by independent independent living skills specialist Tracy Gar in studio uh, to talk all about it. Hey, Tracy, how are you doing? I'm doing really good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, my, it's my pleasure. So the, the Inside Gala, another year has come. I can't believe it's been a year since the last one. I mean, it's always amazing when you get like these milestones, like the CNIB Inside Gala. It's like amazing. You're always like, oh my God, I can't believe it's yeah. been a year, right? I know, it just flies by. I know. So tell me about it. Yeah, looking forward to it next week. It uh, We're uh, celebrating our 19th year doing it. It's going to be a big art auction, all kinds of prizes, live auction prizes, um, any um, some of the the auction prizes like entertainment, dining, um, a helicopter ride for four. So we have some big prizes going on, and all this is going toward is our guide dog program and programming in Manitoba, and keeping things moving along here in our community. I, I want to talk about uh, your, your guide dog, Marion. She's yep. in studio right now. Uh, I want to talk about her in just a second, but I know in the past there was a portion of the meal that was in complete darkness. Is that something that's going on this year again? Uh, this year we're just doing the art auction piece, but next year we'll have combined again the dining in the dark and okay. the art auction. So we're just doing that every other year. Uh, you know, we want to get people that year a chance to clean their clothes up and, uh, <laughs> you know, the dry cleaning might take a while. Well, exactly. Like, so the the, the dining in the dark is so uh, uh, what was going on there, and, it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Tracy, um, but what was going on was uh, you, there was a portion of the meal, I don't think it was the whole the, the whole meal, right, where the lights were turned off and you had to eat in the dark and, yeah, and, and uh, feel what it's like to be, you know, uh, to have a visual disability. Yeah, so, and I mean, and there was a little bit light, so we make them sure we make them wear blindfolds to even mm-hmm. get, you know, make it pitch black, and uh, they do eat their entire meal. They're allowed to eat their dessert if they want, without the blindfold, but most people did everything under blindfold, dinner, dessert, you know, trying to pour their wine, you know, you hear oh, the spills man. and thrills and, and that's what it's all about. Um, so it's a lot of fun. Yeah. In, in a way, kind of, uh, you know, step into the life of, of, of someone else as well, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's a good experience. So why is it such an important gala to support? Well, I mean, we're a community organization, and uh, we've only had our guide dog program up and running for the last couple of years, and it costs up to fifty grand to train one dog. Mm-hmm. And we did a survey, over 4,000 Canadians, um, and bringing a guide dog school to the CNIB is what one thing that people did say they wanted, and, you know, we've brought it to light, 
And we're starting off small. We're putting out quality, not quantity at this point. And that's what Marion has brought to, to me. It's giving me back my independence. It's being able to leave work, walk home, grab a bus, do what I want, and feeling good about yourself when you hit the street. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and uh, your, your guide dog again, Marion, is he is here in studio. And you told me something amazing. She was the first trained at, this, at, this, at the CNIB uh, school here in Manitoba. Yeah, she's the uh, first one from our program in Manitoba. From the program, there, yeah. yeah, there's about um, probably 25, 30 out there, but she's the first um, in Manitoba. And it's uh, been really, really um, interesting to see the ability that she, the, the work that she does. I've had other guide dogs from other schools and she's second to none. And the quality really shows in what our trainers are doing. And it is, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. So this is obviously, the, you know, something that's very, very important to you. It is. It's very important. And the community services too. I mean, we have adjusting to vision loss groups. We have walking groups. It's all of our other programming too that all comes together for this. It's... Um, we do so much more out there for the community, and that's what helps keep us running as well. You talk about your your, your relationship uh, with, with your with your guide dog, Marion. You know, it gives you your your independence. I mean, what's what's your bond like? It's really good because you have to pay attention so much. You just can't daydream while you're walking home. You're waiting for her to slow um, or stop at a street. Now you're listening for traffic or if, say I'm crossing Portage Avenue, you, you listen for that cuckoo or that chirping sound, but you're also waiting for her to make that decision. You know, is there, did someone pull too far out? So she's going to take me around. Is it safe? Is it not? And I have to trust her on you know, crossing eight lanes of traffic when it can be really crazy on Portage Avenue. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's just amazing, these dogs. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, where do you kind of start training these, the, you know, they start as puppies, right? Yeah, well, and we have puppy raisers here in Manitoba. We have some really <laughs> awesome puppy raisers. They're doing a fantastic job. And they take them for that first 12 to anywhere 15 months or so. And then they go to Ottawa for formal training. And then after that, then they look at matching them with someone. And that's where Marion was matched with me. And uh, she was raised in Halifax, went to Ottawa, came here. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it is a long process. And those puppy raisers, after those, you know, 12, 14 months, whatever, now they have to give them back. It's got to be tough. Yeah. I couldn't give up this cute little fuzzball at the beginning. <laughs> I couldn't and, and then, But then you look at Marion and other guide dogs on the street and what they're doing and the jobs they do, it's pretty impressive. And it all starts with those puppy raisers. Well, just to give maybe our listeners an example, I mean, I don't know how, you're, you're here fairly often, Tracy, once yeah. every three, four months. Is, does that sound about right? Uh, yeah, around so, there. So Marion, the guide dog, she knew exactly where to come in. She knew yeah. exactly where the door was, where the seat was that, yeah. that you sit at. Um, and, and this I, is actually only time two for Marion. Yeah, this is only second. Like yeah. that to me is amazing. This is how like uh, effective they are at what they're what they're doing. Yeah, they have an incredible memory. They do so much work. We call it landmarking. So I might show her four months ago where I was going, say in Polo Park. Mm -hmm. Go back for and she'll remember that spot. Wow! So you tap it out, you landmark it, you you give her a treat. Um, she is a black lab, and uh, they love their food. So that <laughs> that food orientation and and treating them up, it really motivates them to find certain spots and. Um, I tell her to the button, she knows to, to put her nose close to the button to cross the street. Um, all those things are so crucial and the mm. training is just impeccable. What they do is 
Um, yeah, it, it is pretty amazing what they put into the dogs. Uh, you know, the, uh, the 2020 CNIB Inside Gala is coming up again next Thursday, March 12th at the yep. RBC Convention Center. All proceeds are going to support this fantastic guide dog program. I mean, where, how and where can people buy tickets? Uh, you can go to CNIBInsightGala.com or you can even phone uh, Glenda in our office here at 204 789 0947. And if somebody wants to volunteer or they want to help out, help sponsor the event, uh, same same process? Yeah, call Glenda and uh, give them a call or you can even call our local number uh, at our reception at 774-5421. Even if you don't volunteer this year, we have other events and different things. We're always looking for the community to, to come out and help. Yeah, and just, just one last thought. Uh, I mean, uh, how, how, how strong is your bond with, with your guide dog? It's very strong. Yeah. Again, you have to really trust them. And when you're doing certain things, if she's pausing or she's hesitated, you have to decide, is she saying, you know, you have to kind of figure out what is she saying to you. Mm-hmm. It could be a, a, an obstacle that's just way too close. We can't get around and she's going to refuse to go. And that's her call. So now you have to find a different route to get home. Amazing. So, you know, construction of Manitoba pops up pretty quick sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it does, it does. And so, it's, it tends to stick around for quite a while. Yeah. And then vanish in the, in the, in the, vanish in the middle of the night. Yeah. What happened? Where did this all go? Exactly. Uh, Tracy Garbutt is an independent living skills specialist with CNIB. The 2020 CNIB Inside Gala coming up again next Thursday, March 12th at the RBC Convention Center. A ticket's still available. Tracy, thank you so much for coming in. No, thank you for having me. I want to play a clip here before we, we lead into our conversation here with St. Boniface Councillor Matt Allard, who's waiting patiently on hold. I, I appreciate that, Matt. Just, just hold on one quick second. I just want to play this clip uh, by University of Manitoba civil engineer Ahmed Shalabi. You're looking at about a billion dollars of investment every single year. Building a proper foundation for that $1 billion makes a lot of sense. Ahmed there says that we're basically catching up to other provinces and cities in this one component. Cities looking at new rules for their process involving road construction, hopefully grow the shelf life of our roads. According to the City of Winnipeg Engineering Department, the changes would allow uh, concrete construction to last 25% longer while adding 15% to asphalt. To talk more about this, I'm joined by St. Boniface Councillor Matt Allard. Uh, Councillor Allard, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Pleasure. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. Uh, what were your initial thoughts on this potential change on how we can kind of uh, grow the shelf life of the uh, roads in the city? Well, a few, I, I can't remember exactly when, but I did get to tour the University of Manitoba partnership, uh, the chair of uh, the infrastructure chair, with doc, chaired by Dr. Shalaby. And uh, it's a partnership between the city of Winnipeg and the University of Manitoba. And uh, there, uh, Mr. or Dr. Shalaby uh, explained uh, what was happening with, uh, with, with improvements in the base specifications there. And uh, so that's the first time I, I was alerted to this. And uh, basically, I think it's, it's, it was, at the time, very, a very interesting issue because we know we need to spend more on roads, and we're doing that. We're spending record uh, dollars on, on road renewal uh, and investing in our roads. But... Um, what, what was new uh, in my conversation with uh, Dr. Shalabi is that, uh, you know, there's always ways to do things better. And in this case, it, it sounds like we can do things much better with a base that's about twice as strong and, uh, and, and the advantages that come with that. Yeah, costs. This is what we've, we, we've heard. Um, there were some concerns raised by developers. Uh, could costs go up? 
Uh, you know, I think we need to go into the field and actually and actually test this to see what will happen uh, with costs. Uh, the way that we do business with the city is uh, we put out tenders and uh, we we come back and we we get the best uh, we select the best product essentially. But it's I don't think it's as simple as some have uh, made it out to be. So the base uh, is twice as hard. Uh, you need less base with this new specification, which means you need less surface. So you need less concrete or asphalt on top of the base. So there'll be some some cost savings there. So the only way that we can really know what the costs are going to be is to actually go out in the field. And there's already been uh, substantive talks with the industry and our public service. Uh, there's already been a revision to uh, what's called um, uh, what we had at the beginning of the year in January was R20, uh, which is the standard, and that's been changed to R21. So there's been uh, basically a holiday on on penalties for for not building um, the right uh, the right road. That's been lifted. For, uh, for this construction season 2020. So we're basically going to have a test year where we're not going to be levying additional penalties on, uh, on roads not being constructed to standard. Uh, so so for, the, for the industry, that, that reduces some risk. And also for uh, roads built by developers for this year, they're going to be allowed to use the, the older standard, which uh, Dr. Shalaby has uh, described as uh, mostly obsolete. And we should really be getting off of that older standard and, and building roads like most other jurisdictions do which uh, will last longer and uh, perform better over time. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Uh, I mean, he also said that we're far be- behind other provinces when he mentioned that it is almost a- obsolete. I mean, how, how do we get back, uh, you know, a, at standard with pretty much the rest of the country? Well, I think that's what we're doing. And, you know, I, uh, you know knocking on doors, roads, is a big, uh, it's a big issue for, for Winnipeggers. But, you know, the next question is, well, okay, sure, you're spending – uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on roads within your term, but are you doing it right? Well, this is about getting it right. And, uh, you know, my, my wife says, uh, you know, if, you do, if you're going to do something, uh, do it right the first time. And, uh, you know, I think this is us trying to get it right uh, the first time. And so this spec, uh, I think, is, is really a positive direction to build roads that are going to last for, for the years to come. And one of the examples is one of our roads in Winnipeg has lasted 90 years now. And so if you build it right, it does last, and that means less cost over time. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm sure you'd like to, to cut down your, your, your inbox, uh, Councillor Allard, uh, in terms of people complaining to you about uh, roads and stuff, eh? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it definitely is an issue, um, <laughs> and it will continue to be. But I think we are catching up. Uh, we have a big infrastructure deficit in Winnipeg. That means we need to fix the things that we have, and we don't have uh, the revenues to do that today. Uh, but over time, we are catching up, and uh, we are catching up on road repairs and rehabilitations and reconstructions. So I think things are getting better, and I think this is a step in the right direction. We're going to build roads that last longer, so mm-hmm. we're going to get the best value for money for Winnipeggers. Uh, testing is going to go um, uh, is going to start going this summer. Yeah, so this year is going to be a testing year, um, and uh, and also uh, there's going to be uh, this this holiday for for roads built by uh, by development projects. So. Uh, we'll have a lot more uh, data uh, after we go through this this year. And basically, in terms of really narrowing down uh, uh, what the costs are going to be, we have to actually go out in the field and uh, put out the tenders, build the roads, build better roads, by the way, but build those better roads and then uh, do that cost-benefit analysis to make sure we're getting the best value for money. But I'm confident we're going in the right direction. So is it safe to say maybe we'll we'll hear more and get a, get a substantial update on this in the fall? Yeah, so the committee uh, yesterday uh, voted to have a verbal update again uh, in the fall. So we're going to go through a construction season. It won't be uh, a written update, won't be ready yet. So we'll get uh, we'll get a verbal from administrators. They'll tell us how things went, 
And uh, I expect we'll get a more formal, more substantive update after that, and uh, that'll inform uh, our specification revisions in the future. St. Boniface Councillor Matt Allard on the show. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate you jumping on. Pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. There goes Matt Allard, uh, the uh, St. Boniface uh, Councillor. Uh, <laughs> I will tell you this. You know, everybody knows this. This is not. I'm not speaking out of line here. The road system in Winnipeg. And the way that they're being constructed and they're being built needs to change. Everybody's got a different opinion as to why the roads are not as, as and I'm putting this lightly, they're not as good as other jurisdictions nearby. Hint, hint, North Dakota, hint, hint, northern Minnesota. Same climate. Saskatchewan, driving to Kenora, once you hit the Ontario border, the roads get much better. Everybody's got their theories as to why it, uh, why that is. It's probably, everyone's probably right. It's probably a casting a very, very wide net in terms of why the roads are that they are. So I'm not going to say anyone's wrong, but there is a lot of reasons as to why that is. And I hope, I hope the city of Winnipeg is doing the right thing here and they're addressing it. And if they can extend concrete construction to 25% longer, by just making this these simple changes, I think everybody can get on board for that. I know when you hear, oh, it's going to take another year to, to get this process done, and, and you hear Councillor Allard also talking about sort of a holiday for the current construction crews to keep using the old methods that have, have proven to, to not be good. Uh, let's just hope that this is the last summer where this happens, and the next summer we can, we can take some real steps uh, in fixing the roads here. Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.